Okay, we're back with Civil Action. This is our podcast on reviewing recent cases that have come down from the California Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit, sometimes the United States Supreme Court, and oftentimes the California Courts of Appeal. And uh, we've been lately, we've also been taking a little side trip and doing interviews with interesting people dealing with issues involving COVID-19 in our law practice, uh, important issues that come up. So today, though, we're going to go return to the idea of reviewing some important cases. And today, uh, we usually try to review four cases and cover it in about 25 minutes. Today, we're going to review three cases because our first case is an important case that came down from the California Supreme Court very recently, uh, an important case that affects plaintiff's practices. But before we do that, Shant, Shant Karnickian, I didn't even introduce you, Shant. I feel terrible. I'm here. I'm here. It's okay. That's fine. A lot of people forget about me. That's okay. But I'm Shant Karnickian. I'm Brian's uh, sidekick helper here. And uh, you can find us online at kbklawyers.com. And you can reach out to us if you have any questions, if you have any feedback. Complaints about Brian are always welcome. Uh, we're very concerned about him. Uh, but reach out if you have any questions, if you have any feedback for us, or if you want to talk to us about the problem you have or a case you have. We'd love to hear from you. So today we have three cases we're going to cover. First, we're going to go over, uh, as Brian said, a very important UCL and false advertising case from the California Supreme Court. That's the highest court in this land. Um, no, no, no. And, the, it's the highest court in California, not in this land. And, well, that's that's this land. Um, no, but uh, it, they deal with whether or not uh, you are entitled to a jury trial in a UCL case, and uh, very important decision there. Next, we're going to look at a court of appeal case about punitive damages. It's a little primer on managing agent and the amount of punitive damages you're entitled to. And lastly, we're going to find out from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal whether you can sue dead people, and I won't give it away. So let's get started on our first case because I think I want to spend most of the time talking about this. It's called Nationwide by Weekly Administration Inc. versus Superior Court of Alameda County. Uh, and we, we're going to do a little in-depth there because there's so many important issues here. The first thing is that the case uh, came down on April 30th, 2020. So relatively recent case from when we're recording this. Um, and it was a rare case where it was not a unanimous Supreme Court. It was a 4-3 decision, but not a 4-3 with a three-person uh, dissent. It was a three-person concurrence. And interestingly, Justice Kruger wrote the concurrence um, with Justice Liu and uh, Quaylar concurring. So what I would consider to be probably the, the three most liberal judges on the court, um, the court's pretty far left anyways, but the three most liberal in the concurrence, uh, the chief justice actually wrote the opinion. That's how significant it is. And um, the two Republican appointees, Chin and Corrigan, uh, as well as Jerry Brown's last appointee, Josh Groban, no shot, not the singer. The singer, uh, very famous singer, but yeah, no, go on. And, and, and Supreme Court Associate Justice uh, concurred. So that's the first thing to point out. The second thing I think important to point out about this case is basically the facts. You want to take that, Sean? Yeah, this involved a uh, like a, a collection company, a loan collection company that was falsely advertising to people or trying to trying to collect from consumers that had taken out loans. And the district attorneys from four different counties uh, decided to bring a UCL and false advertising action against them, arguing that they were misleadingly implying that Nationwide was affiliated with the lender when they weren't. Um, disguising the amount that Nationwide was going to charge and overstating the amount of savings that the consumer can get. So pretty straightforward set of facts there, actually, if you read what the allegations are against Nationwide. 
Yeah, um, one of the things I thought that they did particularly of interest was the fact that they said instead of making monthly payments, make two biweekly payments, which ended up instead of being 24 payments, they would have to make 26 payments. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's pretty deceptive stuff. Um, and it's pretty straightforward. And the reason I keep mentioning that it's straightforward is it becomes relevant later when we talk about the reasoning behind, uh, the decision that the court made here. So the issue that this case, this case is a little bit like going to to the buffet, which I guess we're never going to see a buffet again, but going to the buffet and there's so many great, delicious things. You don't know what to take and how to fill your plate because we we like buffets. Yeah. Can you tell? But yeah, 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 that's, that's why we're, that's why we're doing this like on the radio so you don't actually have to see us but what's interesting about this case is i mean you can jump in anywhere you want and the first thing that's of real interest here is that i guess we have gone something like 45 years uh with not a single decision from the court of appeal anywhere in california holding that there was a jury trial right uh under the ucl or under the false advertising statutes Right? Yeah, the the uh, courts of appeal have consistently said that um, UCL and false advertising cases for 45 years, uniform line of cases that say that these causes of action should be tried by a court rather than a jury. And never once reaching the, the California Supreme Court. That's what's the surprising part here. Yeah, that's correct. No one's ever tried to. I'm sure people have tried to, but the court, uh, Supreme Court has never directly dealt with this issue, which is surprising. The next thing that's interesting is that this case, the lower court found, and apparently the first court of appeal in a published decision ever to find that there is a jury trial right, and they rely on a United States Supreme Court case called Tull versus United States. And when I first thought that, I thought, oh, some new law has come nope. down. Nope. 1987, almost as old as me. Thanks. Younger than you, though, much younger than you. Uh, but yeah, they, they rely on this Tull case, which said that uh, Tull was a United States Supreme Court case, so it didn't deal with California's UCL or false advertising law. But it held that in a case where the government is seeking civil penalties, in addition to just injunctive relief, um, you have a right under the Constitution of the United States, you have a right to a trial by jury because there is a due process consideration. There's money there that's uh, being sought. So you have a right to a trial by jury, even though. So it's one would so one would think because of this toll decision 33 years ago and the Seventh Amendment that it would be a slam dunk that you have a right to a jury trial. Right. Turns out not right. So. In the category of learn something every day, the California Supreme Court specifically in this case held that the Seventh Amendment doesn't apply to the states for civil jury trials. That's right. California has its own constitutional provision that talks about the right to a jury trial. And apparently the Seventh Amendment does not apply uh, to state court cases. The court held specifically that it's entirely independent of the United States Supreme, uh, the, the United States Constitution, uh, and that the Seventh Amendment is a quest is not an issue. And then they cite a series of quest of cases that say that it, it isn't a an absolute right to a civil jury trial in the states. 
Yeah, it's different. The provision in the California Constitution is different uh, and independent from the Seventh Amendment of the Constitution. So and, and I, maybe, I, maybe we should also back up a little bit here. And, and some people might know the distinction between a legal cause of action and equitable cause of action. You know, a legal cause of action typically involves a lawsuit where you're seeking money to compensate for damages for an injury caused by someone or or tortious conduct like you know breach contract things like that. Uh, whereas equitable relief, which we traditionally think of as a uh, a claim for a court to decide as opposed to a jury, is when you're seeking an injunction, where you're trying to deprive someone or prevent someone from doing something. And legal causes of action, like money damages, are everyone, on, I think there is agreement that they should be decided by a jury um, because of a right to a jury trial. Um, and then equitable is typically decided by a court. So there's an intersection of those two here because under the UCL, you can seek an injunction, but you can also seek civil penalties like disgorgement of ill-gotten gains. And that's what was being sought here in addition to an injunction by right. these district attorneys. But I want to go back to the buffet for a second and focus on this right to a jury trial. And what the court said is that the first thing you have to understand about the right to a jury trial in California is that when California's constitution was entered into in, I believe, 1858, I could be wrong, but I think that's the correct date, that um, it was if, if a matter was subject to a jury trial at that time, at that moment in time, it has an absolute right to a jury trial, right? Yeah. And then it says after that, it really looks at whether or not it's a hybrid of that rule, which or, or of that of a, of a case that could have existed before 1858, or was the right to a jury trial granted by the legislature? Okay, that would be through statute, right? Yeah, through a statute, or denied by a statute. So if it was a new invented claim, um, they could the legislature could come along and say we're going to deny the right to a jury trial for this, and it's it's a matter subject to the court. So you know. That's interesting from a historical standpoint, what is and what isn't. Um, and then I think you go one more step from that, Sean. Sorry to, to dominate here because I'm going to turn it over to you in just a second. I think the next thing they look at is um, really what the case is about, you know, and, and, and the facts and the circumstances. Yeah, they look at the source of uh, the claim that's being brought, and they conclude ultimately that under the UCL, this is entirely statutory. It's not like the equivalent of the UCL existed under common law, and they and they sort of contrast it with a um, – there's a case whose name I forget right now, but you might remember it off the top of your head – a civil forfeiture type of case where the government was looking to take away someone's vehicle that was used in the commission of a crime. And over there they say, look, the source of One that – 1941 Chevrolet. Coop. Yep. That's uh, the name of the case. Yep. And it was, uh, and they look at that and they say, look, th that's not an, a sort of artificial creation by the legislature. Rather, that's something that did exist in common law, the ability to deprive someone of their property. And, and that's entitled to um, that's entitled to a trial by jury. But, here, but is there really such a difference between the deprivation of someone's property and the deprivation of someone's money? I look. I'm with you on this. I, I, you know, I'm. We're neither of us on the Supreme Court. Last time I checked, but I don't fully agree with this because, yeah, things like the questions like that come to mind. What's the difference here? Look, they say that this is a civil penalty meant to punish, and it's not compensation for damages. So it's different from you know the the legal cause of action where you're seeking damages. But when you're trying to punish 
someone, and I guess it's an entity here, but isn't isn't there some sort of constitutional protection there when you're trying to punish someone by depriving them of their property? I mean, apparently not, and apparently not. not if it's if it's under the uh, unfair competition law or the advertising, the false advertising law. And they say what they say here, and this is one of the things that I struggle with in this case, is that. Um, well, I struggle with several things. And the first thing I struggle with is when they say this is a difficult issue that would be very hard for juries to grasp. There's nuances. There's nuanced issues. What would you, what would a jury be able to determine is unfair competition? What isn't unfair competition? What the amount is? There's discretionary issues. Yeah, we have them in every case. I mean, if you've tried a case and you've looked at a jury trying to explain emotional distress, you understand it's a nuanced, difficult issue. But juries do it every day at every courthouse in the United States. Well, not right now because there's apparently no civil trials taking place. But you get my gist, right? And isn't it a slippery slope, too, to say right. the, the reason for taking away the right to a jury trial is because it's too it's too complicated, it's too nuanced, it's too sophisticated? I mean, where do we draw the line? Sure, maybe in a complex uh, banking or financial fraud scheme, uh, uh, maybe. Um, but over here, it's like I said, it's pretty straightforward. They were telling consumers that they represent the lender, and they didn't. They were misrepresenting to them the amount of savings they'd have and the payments that they have to make. Uh, I mean, that's pretty straightforward. I mean, where do we draw this? line now with these UCL claims, you could have a pretty straightforward UCL claim where company advertised this, but they sold this, uh, you know, they sold a different product. Um, you know, right. it, it, it's, it doesn't sit right. It doesn't pass the Brian and shot smell test. But again, like I said, full disclosure, we are not on the California Supreme Court. No, I just checked and you're absolutely right. We aren't. Now, another thing that's interesting about this case, Carter, back to the buffet for a second, is that Guess who didn't want a jury trial in this case? Guess who was advocating for a court trial? The the government that was seeking to seeking to leverage penalties, which to yeah. me is a big giant red flag. When you yeah. start to look yeah. at that and you see that, you go, "Wait a minute! The government didn't want a jury trial. The 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 defendant wanted the jury trial. The government didn't want the jury trial." And and another interesting issue, Sean, is um whether or not this applies to private party cases. Yeah, that's kind of, that's almost left on, uh, they don't address that directly. And, uh, and that's think, the first I, thing I, I wondered. No, I think they closed the door on that. I, yeah. I think that just because it's the government and really uh, private parties stand in the shoes in these cases, sort of. But since most of the cases cited in that 45-year period of time that they're talking about, where courts of appeals uh, traditionally said no right to your trial, are private parties. So yeah, I think that's, that's, that's the red flag here. That's the that was the first concern that came to mind as I started reading this opinion. I said, okay, well this is the government seeking it, but oh crap, this probably applies to private parties and this is not good news uh, when you're bringing a UCL case, case and I know a lot of our listeners and plaintiff attorneys do incorporate that into their claims. I, I think, though, that if we um, th- if we kind of wrap this up, one thing that the court says at the very beginning of this opinion is it this is not a rule that's to be read broadly to other kind of civil penalty claims or causes of action. Uh, they say that. I don't know how it can't be true, but they say that. And then the other thing is the concurrence. And so here's the relevant part of the concurrence 
uh, to comment on, Sean, is um, the concurring opinion by Justice Kruger says, while the UCL liability can readily be characterized as dependent on equitable considerations, meaning that she agreed that um, there was no right to a jury trial for UCL claims, she goes on to say, I do not believe the same can be said of liability under false advertising. And um, I agree with that in concept because false advertising is something that I think a jury should be able to make a determination on, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm not sure, you know, what this is going to lead to, but it's not good. It's not. Yeah, good. It's, it's, but it's a weird concurrence because it, she goes on to say that even though that's her opinion and trying liability under the FAL, the false advertising to the jury, while the rest of the action was decided by the court, um, would create procedural complications without significant benefit to the defendant. I'm like, what? And then she goes on to say, in this case, I would think it's more equitable, but there may be cases where it's not equitable, uh, equitable in, in nature, sounding in equity, uh, and it should be tried to a jury trial. And at that point, after reading the 96-page opinion, I threw my hands up in the air. Yeah, uh, and, but I mean, that concurrence sort of supports what I would propose, the the uh, Sean DeBrine rule when it comes to this. Take it on a case-by-case basis. You know, have whoever doesn't want a jury trial or whoever wants a jury trial make a showing of why it should be tried to a jury or to a court. Why come up with a blanket rule that this should all be tried uh, to a court? Uh, So that's our proposal. Slippery slope. Yeah. Let's move on. Let's talk about Colucci versus T-Mobile USA, a a primer and how not to treat your employees. Oh, yeah. And and also primer, uh, all kidding aside, on how to address motions to reduce punitive damages or motions for new trial where there's uh, where there's allegations of punitive damages being too high or something. So this comes out of the uh, fourth appellate district. It originates in San Bernardino. It involves Stephen Colucci versus T-Mobile USA. So as you probably kind of figured here, uh, Stephen Colucci worked at T-Mobile. He worked at retail stores. He put in a lot of time. He sounds like he was a good employee. He worked there from 2007 to 2014, and he was the manager of a store in Ontario, California. His district manager was a guy named uh, Brian Robson, and Robson, uh, Robson who uh, o- overlooked a number of stores, uh, nine stores, I believe. And at some point, he decided to reassign the plaintiff here, Colucci, from his store, which was actually its own self-standing kind of store, um, to a mall kiosk. He wanted him to become the, uh, the the store manager of a mall kiosk. And Mr. Colucci said, well, I can't really do that because I have an anxiety disorder. And being in a mall, I mean, I think a mall can induce anxiety for anyone. Uh, but being in a mall is not a, not a comfortable environment for me. And what was Mr. Robeson's response when he said, I have a medically diagnosed anxiety disorder that prevents me from working there? His response in an email, apparently, was this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. So um, obviously a very caring, um, deeply concerned person for his for his employees. And then HR came back and said, nope, you can't transfer him. You got to keep him in that store, which sounds like he made Mr. Colucci unhappy or sorry, made Mr. Robeson unhappy so that um, Mr. Robeson's response to that was to tell Mr. Colucci that he should stop quit complaining. Yeah, because other people at the store that uh, Mr. Colucci managed apparently found out about this. I wonder how. And they started talking, and 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 this is referred to as the defamation incident. And he went to Robeson and said, 
people are talking about me. You know, this is defamation. This isn't right. And he said, you've been nothing but problems. You need to quit complaining. Um, so at the same time, Robeson apparently heard about how Colucci has a outside business that he runs, which is perfectly fine. This is America. You can do that. Nothing but, to do. It wasn't in competition with the T-Mobile business. In fact, we call that a side hustle. Have you ever heard that term, Sean? Yes. And this side hustle uh, is one where he sold cars and that's perfectly fine. And apparently there were some almost unsubstantiated claims that Colucci was running this side hustle using the store's, uh, you know, equipment, you know, using the fax machine. And and apparently once he asked an employee to like answer a call, help him help him with something for his side hustle. Right. And And there's a lot more facts here, but um, but needless to say, it wasn't a pleasant place to work for Mr. Colucci. And according to the opinion, um, they they the manager came to visit him one day and he said he wasn't going to be there because he was experiencing severe back pain, which wasn't just made up because apparently later Mr. Colucci had back surgery for his back pain and they fired him. So uh, once he got filed, he filed this um, this action, went to a jury verdict, got a, a, a little over a million dollars in compensatory damages and four million dollars in punitives. And the real um, crux of the rest of our discussion is going to be about the punitive damages and uh, T-Mobile's claim that Mr. Robeson was not a managing agent for the purpose of punitive damages. And Sean is somewhat of an expert on this. I'm not an expert, but I'm pretty well versed in this because I've had to brief this uh, extensively when we did a case where we got a massive punitive damages award and they were infuriated and they tried to reduce it. So uh, when you're looking at this on appeal, well, first of all, let's back up. Punitive damages are warranted where it is proven by clear and convincing evidence that the defendant has engaged in oppression, fraud, or malice. That's statutory. No questions there. And when you look at it on appeal, the the court of appeal has to look and see whether or not it's supported by substantial evidence. If you have substantial evidence, it stands. Um, And then also the punitive damages, uh, again, in the statute, the punitive damage must have uh, been on the part of an officer, a director, and managing agent of the corporation. That's also statutory. But this is analyzed by a case called White versus Ultramar. And the court here looks at White versus Ultramar. I get into the facts of White versus Ultramar, but I don't really have to, because as this court says, the facts are almost directly on point. They're almost analogous to the facts that we had here. There's a guy named Sala, who was a, uh, who was a supervisor of the plaintiff in White, and he acted in, he acted in very similar ways. And he also had substantial discretion. He had authority to do things. Just because he doesn't have ultimate hiring and firing authority doesn't mean that he's not a managing agent. So this case, and I wondered when we first read this, why is this published? It's not like this is some brand new revelation, but I think the reason it's published is because it clarifies um, the standard for a managing agent. And the court says, look, if they have discretion, if they can, if they can decide these things and they can, you know, assign a person from one store to the other and make those types of decisions, then they're a managing agent. They don't have to be a corporate executive. They don't have to be an officer. They don't have to be a CEO. And, uh, that's often an excuse that sometimes we see in, in every case that we've had where there's a question of punitive damages. And this comes up a lot in the insurance context. You have defendants that argue this is just an adjuster. He's not. He's not a manager. He's not. He's not an officer. He's not an executive. They didn't bring in one single executive from the company or any. Doesn't matter. They're 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 considered a managing agent if they were at, if their conduct was ratified by the employer if they were acting with authority. 
So the last part of the opinion was the amount of punitive damages. And here there's a really four time, uh, just about four time multiplier. And um, it, it is one of those conundrums or, or issues that you see in cases, which is punitive damages amounts being cut by uh, a court of appeal. Here they cut it to one and a half times. So they gave basically $1.5 million in punitive damages reduced from the $4 million. And they looked at factors such as there was no pattern in practice. It was an isolated incident, although it was reprehensible on its own. It was isolated and limited. Uh, it was the right amount. And, uh, you know, I guess what troubles me about this is when you have a court sitting there who didn't even hear the evidence, they didn't see and witness the the testimony, they didn't get the demeanor, they didn't get the flavor of what the plaintiff yeah. went through, uh, and then they make a decision like this. It, it I, I get that it's due process, and I understand the rule that's behind it, but it does seem awful. Um, uh, it sort of undermines the jury process when you do right. That. That's what I find unfair about it. And and just so just so everyone knows, the standard comes from a case called State Farm. And there's really like it's Campbell. sort of. Campbell versus State Farm. And there's three guideposts, the degree of reprehensibility, disparity between the actual and potential harm that the plaintiff suffered and the difference between the punitive damages. Um in this case and other cases. And look, over here, they reduce it. They looked at the facts. I don't like that the Court of Appeal is acting as a jury. I get why it exists because of due process. And that comes from, you know, a case called Roby, R-O-B-Y. Then you have the 14th Amendment that, that provides for due process. I get why the Court of Appeal has a say in it. I just don't like that they act as a fact finder and go, well, the conduct wasn't that bad. Well, they didn't sit through a trial. They didn't hear the defendant testify. They didn't right. hear the plaintiff testify. Uh, so, yeah, that's my bone to pick with this. But otherwise, this is a good decision to look at if you're ever dealing with punitive damages. All right, let's go to our last case, which is, uh, do I see dead people? Do you see dead people? Uh, this case is called LN Management LLC versus uh, J. Morgan Chase as a long title. It's a Ninth Circuit case. It comes out of Nevada. And why are we talking about a case out of Nevada? That is because I think that far too many plaintiff lawyers do not understand that you can't sue dead people and you can't sue the fictional estate of a dead person. It's much more complicated than that. So very quickly, the facts of it, which are only mildly interesting, I guess, is that Nevada has some kind of statute that allows you, that allows homeowner associations to foreclose if somebody doesn't pay their homeowner dues. That's exactly what happened to someone here named, what was the name? Kit Dansker. Um, now, bad news, Kit died. So uh, even worse news, apparently Kit died alone and had a daughter, maybe, that lived out of state. And uh, but nevertheless, the homeowners association went ahead and foreclosed and was trying to take the property. But the problem with that was there were banks who had a, a primary interest in the property. And apparently under Nevada law, um, the HOA can extinguish the, um, the, the, the deeds of other um, banks and entities like that if for failure to pay dues. So the person that, or the entity that the property was sold to here, LN Management LLC, brought a quiet title action. That's an action to determine who uh, who has the title against J.P. Morgan Chase and the Federal National Mortgage Association, the Federal Housing Finance Agency, a bunch of different parties. Convoluted kind of background over there. But ultimately, what one of the issues that's being decided in this appeal is whether or not there's diversity jurisdiction. As you know, if there's diversity, if it's a dispute between parties of 
of different states, if there's complete diversity, then the federal court has jurisdiction over it. Um, if there isn't, if you have parties from the same state on both sides of the V, so to say, then you have, uh, then the state can stay in state court. But the issue here is whether or not there's diversity. And over here, Ellen Management argues that, look, we named um, Mrs., uh, Mrs. Kit Dansker here in the action. So uh, there dead is person. diversity. Dead person. So they yeah. named a dead person. Yep. And they said there was there was um, there was no diversity in the case should stay in. They wanted the case to stay in state court. But I really don't think that part of the case is as interesting as the whole notion of who you can sue when somebody is dead, when a defendant's dead. Right. And in a section that's aptly titled, can I sue dead people? Question mark. Uh, the uh, the court of appeal here addresses whether or not you can. And the uh, spoiler alert the answer is no, you can't sue dead people. But Brian's right. The more important thing to learn from here is that you can't also just, nor can you name just the estate of the dead person because common, the estate- common mistake. It happens yep. all the time. Plaintiff lawyers name the estate of Brian Kavitek. Well, they it, don't actually do that. <laughs> not yet. Uh, not yet. Uh, the, but the estate is not, it's a, it's a, it's a fiction. It's a legal fiction. And, and there's a line in here in the case where they say it's similar to the memory of the dead person. Yeah, sure. We can all think of it. We can all think of the estate, but it's a, it's a fiction. It's not a natural person that exists that can be served or be put on notice, nor is it an entity that's been formed that has so a who do you representative. Sue? Who do you sue? Who do you well, sue? You, you need to sue an appropriate representative. And you can't just say the daughter of or something like that. What you have to do is if this person has died and there has been no probate open and there has been no formal estate established with an executor or representative, you as the plaintiff need to go in and open probate. And there's procedure for doing this in state court um, and open probate and have an executor appointed or find out if the, if the um, estate is going to appoint someone. And that's the person that needs to be named as the executor or representative of the estate. Right. They make it easy if they've already gone out and, and set up their uh, an estate and there's a, an executor, an administrator of the estate that's already been named, then you can name that person in their capacity as administrator or executor. Uh, do you know the difference? I don't. When do you, uh, an administrator is when you have a, a, an actual will and it's being administered or a state plan is being administered. An executor would be someone who dies in testing. Um, with that little fascinating tidbit, that's all we have for you today. That's all uh, we have. Thanks for listening. Sean, close it out. Um, thank you for tuning in. And we'd love to hear your feedback during these times. You know, everyone's kind of gone online and we're not having in-person seminars anymore, but we're trying to put out plenty of content to keep you entertained. Um, and we hope it doesn't bore you. But if you have any questions, if you want to talk about insurance issues that come up in, during these times and you have clients asking questions about that, you know, there's opportunities there and we'd be happy to talk to you about that. But thanks for tuning in and check us out online at kbklawyers.com. See you next time.